and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, we're talking about everyone's favorite Middle Eastern rogue state, Iran. Our guest is Ariane Tabatabai, Director of Curriculum for Security Studies at Georgetown University and author of the recent Cato paper, Preserving the Iran Nuclear Deal. So as always, um, we'd like to start and kick things off by talking about some of this week's news stories. And the first thing I want to talk about is the refugee crisis that we're seeing in Asia, where groups of Rohingya Muslims are fleeing Myanmar under persecution and actually creating a, a very large refugee crisis in Bangladesh and, and other surrounding countries. Yeah, terrifying. And I think, you know, this came up when the Syria civil war started producing so many refugees and, and displaced persons. But uh, at this point, there are more refugees globally than at any time since World War II. It's not just the Syrian you know, refugee crisis. It's a global crisis. And it's, it's kind of amazing that we ignore it until sort of these little sharp spikes. But, you know, given how little has been done to help with the Syrian crisis, uh, you sort of wonder what's going to happen to these folks. Well, I think something that is interesting, too, is that a lot of people expected social media and 24-hour news cycles to help us be more aware of these things and therefore tackle them more effectively. I think in reality, it's kind of doing the opposite of that because we're always seeing these images rolling, whether it's Syria or Yemen or now with Myanmar, um, you kind of, you know, the general public is used to it and is not really shocked by any of the images that we're seeing. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that we may actually be getting desensitized to this kind of thing, because I've been kind of wondering why we haven't been seeing calls for humanitarian intervention in this case. Um, and I'm not advocating for humanitarian intervention. Frankly, i believe the academic research basically shows that it rarely works. But if you look at the calls a couple of years ago for intervention in Syria or in Libya, and then you look at the fact that basically no one's even talking about Myanmar, there's a really striking difference. And I'm not really sure why that is. Yeah, I think, you know, just just hypothesizing here a little bit, it's, it's far away. It's a place Americans are not familiar with. Uh, it's a Muslim population of refugees. Um, there are other things going on that are taking up brain space for Americans. If you're worried about international issues, North Korea seems to be, you know, hot and front and center. And um, and I, th- I really do think sort of the compassion fatigue issue is real. And and sort of in addition to just compassion fatigue, sort of the image fatigue is a, is a sort of a new version of that problem. And so maybe that has. And you know, I think it's like natural disaster, sure. But if it's if it's just other people's you know, internal issues, Americans just seem not to be so interested. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's always easy to sit back and a decade later after a humanitarian disaster and say, you know, um, why did people not do more? And we always have this never again kind of uh, approach to to things afterwards. Um, but when you're in the middle of it, I think most people just don't really process it, don't see it. It's not on their map. They're not really thinking about it. Well, from uh, from one set of perhaps unwanted people to another, um, the Kurds have been making headlines this last week. Um, we've seen this Kurdish independence referendum. It's not actually officially authorized, but they went ahead and held one anyway. Um, and apparently 93% of Kurds voted for independence in this referendum. Um, but neither the government in Baghdad nor any of the neighbors that surround this, the Kurdish region in Iraq want this to happen. So where's this going? 
Well, one thing that is important to know is that um, the referendum is not designed to be a that said, we're exiting um, Iraq type of move, right? It's supposed to be the first step toward a, a negotiation process that would kick off the, the, the engagement with Baghdad over what happens next. Um, of course, the, the problem for the Kurds is that um, basically the only major player in the region that has backed their, uh, their effort here is Israel and potentially Russia. Uh, and everybody else is against it, and they've been very forceful with it as well. Um, you know, Iran and uh, Iraq are conducting uh, drills in uh, in the border area as we speak. Um, uh, the Turks and the Iranians have been meeting uh, more frequently than they had been in the past couple of years. And, of course, the U.S. has an interest in preserving territorial integrity and uh, national unity there. So I think that it's going to be an uphill battle for them. It seems like a just a general statement. Um, referenda to exit or, you know, signals of desire to exit from existing um, political systems never seem to be well received. I mean, we have another vote just recently in, in Catalan region and Spain, and they, the Spanish are beating heads of, you know, peaceful, uh, you know, protesters and whatnot, because they just don't want to let go of their chunk of land. And, you know, it's just um, you know, all the Brexit even. I mean, people are upset about that. It just uh, status quo is, is a big deal to people, it seems like. But, you know, there is an interesting difference between uh, the Brexit or, or even perhaps the um, British vote to leave the European Union, both of which were legitimate referendums recognized by the central government. The government said that they would be binding if they went through. And these other referenda in, in Catalan just the other day and in the Kurdish region in Iraq, which aren't recognized by the governments that they actually want to secede from. And then that's where we start to see violence. Um, and so there's... There's kind of an interesting question here of, I guess, self-determination. Do the people themselves have the right to decide that they want this referendum or does the government have to consent that, to give it to them in the first place? Yeah, sure they do, but not. you have to take it. Nobody, it's not on paper anywhere that you get it. <laughs> I think the difference also here between um, Iraq and Spain is that with the Kurds, we haven't really seen violence so far as much as we've seen muscle flexing by various players in the region saying, here's, you know, we're going to deploy armored vehicles and, um, uh, you know, planes and so on and show you that we can do things. But they haven't actually done anything substantial, whereas in Spain, it seems like there has been a um, more systemic um, uh, effort to actually stop the, the process from happening. Well, I suspect that uh, particularly the Kurdish independence question is one we'll come back to again over the next several years, if, if not longer. Um, but let's uh, just quickly move on to our third news story of the week. And, and this is my favorite, which is the surprise announcement that Saudi Arabia is finally going to let women drive starting next year, assuming they can put in place all the necessary policies. Um, it's kind of easy to laugh about this, right? But it's actually a big step for Saudi women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the, the things that has led people to kind of you know, mock it um, is not necessarily the the step itself, which I think is a very important one, is the reaction of the Saudi government um, and the way it's been sort of showcasing it on social media and elsewhere saying, look at us, we're taking this huge step. And it's like, well, okay, 
basically every other country on the planet has been doing it for decades. It's, you know, it's not that big. I mean, it is a big, big deal for Saudi Arabia and for Saudi women, uh, but you're not, it's not groundbreaking, essentially, right? Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's incredibly important um, on two uh, specific um, levels um, from, uh, from my perspective. The first one is whether or not this is going to be part of a broader reform movement. Um, it's likely that it won't be, but it'll be interesting to see if it's a one-off and it's sort of the nugget that the Saudi government gives to the uh, to Saudi women, or if it does translate into a, a more um, comprehensive reform movement. The second thing that I think will be interesting is whether or not it will have an impact on foreign policy, because so much of Saudi Arabia's uh, regional policy specifically with Iran uh, especially has been... Um, has been conducted in the frame within the framework within the context of domestic politics, and a lot of it has to do with domestic dynamics. So it'll be interesting to see if the Saudi government being able to cater to its population a bit more, being able to tackle some of its domestic challenges a bit more, will translate into a different approach to regional issues. Yeah, for me, this ends up being a big a question of sort of like PR versus reality. And this is an actual concrete step. The Saudi government is very uh, consistently across the years good at public relations, at saying, you know, we're better than other states in the region, that we are making all these reforms, and then they almost never follow through on them, whether they're economic or social reforms. This is an actual concrete step they've promised to make. And I am, for, for myself, as someone that watches Saudi Arabia, incredibly curious to see whether they're actually able to follow through on this, because if they don't, I think the backlash will be quite large. Well, and I sort of wonder, too, about the potential backlash if they do do it internally and, and whether the sort of more conservative, um, you know, factions within Saudi Arabia are going to be mobilized in a way that I would expect that would happen here. If we did something equally large socially, left or rightward, there would be a very big counter mobilization. And given Saudi Arabia's role, you know, in terms of being kind of the keeper of Islam and stuff like that, I mean, I it just I, – I, I worry whenever big things happen in the Middle East, I guess I would say. I, I don't have a theory here. I just like, wow, it seems like it's a big kerfuffle and it's going to ruffle a lot of feathers and that could be bad. Well, I think that's probably a good note on which to shift to our uh, surprise question of the day, which frankly at this point in our run is not really a surprise anymore. But we want to ask you, Ariane, um, what do you think is the most overrated threat to the U.S.? And then what's the threat that you think we should actually worry about but maybe we don't talk about too much? Um, so <laughs> the answer to your first question, the sort of overinflated threat um, is uh, naturally for me, it's going to be Iran. Um, I think that there is uh, a lot of uh, discussion, a lot of rhetoric around uh, Iran's intentions and capabilities that are frankly detached from the reality of the country. Uh, the way people in D.C. specifically talk about Iran, you know, it is on a par with Russia and China which if you look at their actual capabilities and including their in, and, and their uh, intentions is not at all um, within the realm of reality. Um, I think it's something that the Iranians would love to, to you know, um, showcase as, yes, we have those those capabilities. You know, we, we can we can uh, fight any major power and, and do well. But in reality, that's not at all the uh, where they are. Um, in terms of your second question, I think it's not necessarily going to be a foreign policy answer for me as much as it is a domestic one. And I think uh, it is the partisan nature of um, domestic politics in the U.S., uh, the fact that we can't get anything done, uh, the fact that even the most basic things that should really not be that controversial seem to take ages for anything to, to, to happen, to, to move forward. 
Um, and the fact that we can't have conversations across the aisle, um, it's incredibly difficult today for the two sides to be able to have a civilized conversation, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that's a huge threat to just domestic security. I think that's a really great answer. And, and I'm not just saying that because here at Cato, we as third parties often try to uh, help people have those conversations across the aisle. But I, I think you're right. That's a that's a really big problem. Well, let's get let's get back to your most overrated threat of the day then. And let's talk about Iran, which um, pressure is really, really heating up at the moment. Um, we see it in all the news stories. We see the administration starting to make various statements about this. It looks like Donald Trump is basically setting himself up to decertify the Iranian nuclear deal in the middle of October. So what is the deal with this? Is Trump justified? Is there any basis for his actions? Um, well, you know, I think if the question is, are there problems with the nuclear deal, then yes, absolutely. There are flaws with the nuclear deal. And I think many on the pro-deal pro, pro side of things have acknowledged that. I certainly have acknowledged that for, for a while. Um, the, the second question is, do those flaws justify the U.S. withdrawing from the nuclear deal? And my answer is no. Um, so let's start with the problems with the nuclear deal. There are a couple of um, issues that I think are at the forefront of the discussions and, and opponents of the deal have been uh, sort of, you know, putting on the table for a while and saying, this is why we shouldn't keep the deal. The first one is that it doesn't address the missile threat from Iran. Um, and that's something that was excluded from the nuclear negotiations from the get-go uh, because the Iranians had essentially said, if you bring up the missile issue, we are going to walk away. So the P5 plus one, that's the U.S. and its partners um, in the negotiations, including the EU, uh, said from the beginning, OK, we're not going to have a conversation about missiles. In fact, um, I believe just weeks before uh, the final deal, they did end up having that conversations. And the Iranians said, mm -mm, we're not we're not ready to have this. This uh, We're not going to talk about this. So there was a, a, an acknowledgement from the get go that this was not going to be part of the nuclear deal. Is it a problem? Yes, absolutely. Because if you want a functioning nuclear weapon, you need to be able to deliver the nuclear weapon somewhere. And to do that, you very often need a missile, right? Um, so the fact that the, the nuclear deal addresses the, the bomb itself, but not necessarily the delivery vehicle, I think, is a shortcoming. The second problem that people point to is uh, what's referred to as a sunset clause. And there's a bunch of those. There's sunset provisions, which mean that the nuclear deal, um, the different provisions within the nuclear deal will start to expire after 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and there are different provisions that have different sunset clauses. So that is a problem because that means that in 20 years, presumably Iran can return to some of the activities it was undertaking before. However, um, if you want to be able to get a deal, you need to be able to put a timestamp on it and say, OK, we're going to have a time frame on it, rather, uh, and say, you know, um, hey, Iran, we're going to allow you to return to some of your activities. No country is going to sign up for something that will, uh, you know, uh, have it committed to certain provisions, certain limitations for the rest of history. It's just not going to happen. Um, so what do you do with those two flaws? I think that, you know, one way is to keep building on the nuclear deal, uh, which is something the Europeans are doing pretty uh, effectively right now. They're saying, OK, we have this deal. It's not perfect, but it's doing the job for what we want it to, to do. Uh, but we're going to start having conversations about what happens next. And we're going to start having conversations about the missile program. And I think that's the right approach. 
unfortunately, I don't think the administration is um, is on the same page, and I don't think the administration is interested in building on the deal. I mean, at this point, it's not even interested in keeping the deal, let alone building on it. Yeah, there's been this interesting phrase that has been kicked around a little bit, um, I think partly in Europe, partly on the Iranian side, which was the idea of the JCPOA 2.0. And it's not really clear to me if that was uh, an offer to perhaps consider negotiating on things like missiles, or if it was a more sort of a domestic-focused policy to open up to the West a little more. But it, it does seem like the Iranian population and the Iranian government is open to further negotiations, just not on the nuclear question. And there, I think what's interesting, my sense is that, you know, Ariane, as you mentioned, that the administration doesn't seem interested in preserving the existing deal, much less, you know, have, has, hasn't suggested any clear parameters for a deal 2.0. So it doesn't, it's not clear to me. But what was the option they were imagining otherwise is not clear. But but what I don't hear any of is any discussion of what the administration thinks might be reasonable to offer Iran in return for a better deal because the deal is done. They gave you what they were willing to give you more or less. Um, you know, may, Maybe you could have gotten 5 percent more or 10 percent more, but could you get 20 years longer a deal? No. Could you get the missiles in this one? No. Well, and I've never heard anyone on the sort of the anti-deal side suggest what in the world they think they would have to give what would be reasonable. And if you're not willing to give anything, well, you're not getting another deal. So I, I haven't heard any of that conversation. I think that's exactly right. And I think part of the problem is that a lot of people are saying, let's reimpose sanctions. But they're not saying what happens after we reimpose sanctions. Um, You know, the sanctions are not meant to be an end. They're not a policy goal. They're not an objective. They're a means to pursue what you want you know, the the foreign policy outcome you want. And here, the foreign policy outcome you, you want is to stop an Iranian nuclear weapon. Um, so sanctions can perhaps get you back to the negotiating table, which at this point seems unrealistic, frankly, because not only are the Iranians unlikely to come back to the table, the EU isn't really interested in renegotiating the deal. And they've said that um, everybody within the uh, EU leadership has said that from Mogherini, who's the uh, high representative for foreign policy and security affairs or the other way around. It's a very long title. Um, uh, But anyway, so she's in charge of the EU uh, foreign policy to the presidents of uh, France and Germany and the the British prime minister. So if the EU isn't really ready to to play ball, um, Russia and China are definitely not going to be ready to to play ball. And this is not going to bring everybody uh, back together to, to negotiate a better deal. But to your point about the JCPOA too, uh, Emma, um, yeah, it's interesting because uh, Rouhani, the Iranian president, was one of the first ones to actually use um, that term. And he said it. And as soon as he did, the Iranian supreme leader came out and said, no such thing as a JCPOA 2. We don't even trust the Americans to uphold JCPOA 1, let alone a second one. Um, so in hindsight, uh, he was, you know, sort of right, right? The, the U.S. Is, is now contemplating pulling out of the deal. Uh, but what Rouhani had presented was um, two things, was both of the things you mentioned. The first one was a JCPOA 2 that would um, that would be about civil rights and human rights in Iran, so a domestic um, sort of package, uh, which, of course, Supreme Leader was not 
uh, was not on board with. And the second one was a JCPOA 2 that would be a negotiating process with the EU, presumably, potentially the U.S. at the time, uh, about other things like missiles and regional activities, uh, support for terrorism, all the things that have led to their national community, the U.S. and the EU, imposing sanctions on Iran. Yeah, I, you know, the, I think this has been something that I've seen you doing a lot lately on, on Twitter, online, where you basically help to provide um, translation and interpretation of what people in Iran are, are actually saying. And I think that's an angle that's just almost entirely missed out of the debates here in D.C. But it actually seems that the Iranian population is in favor of trying to reach out to the West more, and that perhaps it's merely the top leadership that's continuing to take a fairly hard line. I think that's right. You know, I think for so long, um, and I don't think necessarily just in the case of Iran, um, but certainly in the case of Iran, uh, D.C., Beltway, um, you know, experts have projected their own views of what they think the Iranian leadership thinks and does, as opposed to looking at what they're actually trying to, to, to communicate. Um, and yeah, that's that's part of the reason why I go on so many rants on Twitter these days. Um, but the, the Iranian population, generally speaking, is pushing for more opening. That was part of the reason why they elected, re-elected Rouhani in, uh, this, this year. Um, and the previous year, in 2013, that was also part of Rouhani's platform. It's been part of the conversation uh, for a couple of decades in Iran. And I think that that's actually a missed opportunity for the United States. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, just to jump right on that, I'm um, not an expert in any way on Iranian politics, but one of the things uh, that I, I've seen the breadcrumbs of is just what you say, that that uh, Iranians, especially younger Iranians, I, I was at a conference where uh, an, a young Iranian PhD student, he's over here in the U.S. studying, did it, had a great paper about um, differences in foreign policy attitudes uh, between younger and older Iranians. And much like the paper I was working on at the time about the same issue in Americans, younger Iranians are much more open to the West, to have more favorable opinions. I mean, they grew up, you know, after the revolution. They don't have the same the same baggage culturally, historically, whatever. So, um, so my own feeling is that the U.S. is missing a massive opportunity to de-escalate this feud with Iran. I mean, obviously, it's it's long going, so it's not an easy thing to turn this ship around. But I, I just don't see Iran being the, the boogeyman of the Middle East the way the Trump administration does. And I think, you know, one of the things that the Iranian regime has been doing since the get-go has been trying to sell this um, anti-American, anti-Western narrative in Iran that hasn't really worked out. People don't buy into it. If you ask, you know, if you randomly pull um, average Iranian aside in the middle of the street and say, which country would you like to go to? You know, if you could just poof magically go somewhere, where would you go and, and live? They would probably pick the U.S., right? Maybe Europe, but that would be it. Nobody is going to pick to, to go to China or Russia, for example. Um, one thing I think the Trump administration is doing is actually pushing people, average Iranians, toward the regime's stance on the U.S. with the travel ban and um, sort of the, you know, the failure to distinguish between people and the regime, the hawkish narratives, the, the Riyadh trip where uh, President Trump was, uh, you know, did 
sword dancing and then um, sort of bash the run. So all of that is going to, to help people go toward that direction. I think this really comes back to sort of the Obama administration's goals in actually negotiating the nuclear deal in the first place. And they were always very clear that this was a non-proliferation agreement, that it wasn't about anything broader. But the potential was clearly there, the idea being that a more cooperative approach to Iran, if you can take a bunch of small steps over a number of years, maybe you can ratchet down the hostility that way rather than by continuing to take this confrontational approach. But the current administration seems to be turning and, and taking the entire the opposite approach. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the the standard hawk dove, you know, chasm in American foreign policy politics, that they're just, there are two worldviews, not just about, you know, uh, strong militaries, but but how you deal with, with adversaries, opponents, and the rest of the world. And, and one group of people without necessarily any real evidence or maybe cherry picking the evidence thinks that the way to deal with people is to be aggressive, to confront them with uh, overwhelming force and, and try to squeeze concessions. And that's the only way to deal with people. And there's a group of people who maybe without evidence believe that the only way forward is cooperation and, you know, and diplomacy. And, and I think, you know, when you study any of these problems, the answer is somewhere in between. But we seem to have an administration right now who really has all their chips on the, uh, on the hawkish approach. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up here, though, I, I'd like to actually sort of address the question of the future, because on October 15th, Donald Trump gets the chance to tell Congress whether he certifies that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear deal or whether he does not certify them. And if he doesn't, which it sounds like he's not he's not going to do that, it will kick the ball back to Congress about whether the U.S. will reimpose nuclear sanctions and if effectively leave the JCPOA. So what I want to finish with is the question of where do we go from there? Assuming that this pans out the way it's looking right now, what are the U.S. policy options towards Iran? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the million-dollar question, right? Um, I think there are a couple of scenarios here. Um, the first one, the Iranians have indicated that they're interested in preserving the nuclear deal, even if the U.S. withdraws, if the EU specifically stays and, and continues to implement the nuclear deal. So I think that's good news from, from my perspective. The problem, though, is that I don't have a lot of confidence in the EU, Iran, Russia, and China's ability to uh, continue implementing the nuclear deal without the U.S. Um, they simply, the EU simply doesn't have the same leverage the U.S. does in terms of uh, economic financial power. Um, and especially if the U.S. begins to reimpose sanctions, then the EU will have to, will face a very serious challenge. What does it do? Does it comply with nuclear sanctions and stymie the, the nuclear deals implementation, or does it ignore U.S. sanctions and um, then end up on the blacklist of the U.S. Uh, Treasury, and uh, but continue working with Iran? Uh, so it'll be a dilemma there. Um, and I think that's probably the most likely way we'll be going if um, President Trump doesn't recertify the, the nuclear deal. Um, so then, you know, both will probably kick the can of uh, the deal dying kind of down the road. Um, and it won't die instantly, but it will definitely uh, suffer a great damage. What's your take on Congress? I, I, I actually, I'm normally the biggest doubter of, of Congress's ability to do anything right. <laughs> but on this, I, on foreign policy under Trump, I'm cautiously, I won't say optimistic, but I wouldn't give it a 0% chance that Congress would decide Trump is just wrong here. 
uh, like they did with the Russia sanctions thing and just say, nope, nope, you're wrong. We're going to – we like the deal. It's – you know, we ha- they have other fish to fry, frankly. And I don't think they want to take up the rest of their very precious legislative uh, days of the calendar this year dealing with, with this on top of all the other stuff. You might well be right. Um, and, and for me, I think this um, highlights a lot of the problems with U.S. sanctions policy more broadly. This isn't just about Iran. Um, you know, this is questions like, can and should the U.S. be using secondary or extraterritorial sanctions to force other areas to to do what it wants and comply with U.S. sanctions laws. And so that would be the question for European states if Donald Trump decides to get out of the deal. Um, And the other question with sanctions policy is how much power does the president have? And so you might be right that Congress may not decide to take steps on this, but I worry about the fact that President Trump actually has a massive amount of unilateral power on the question of sanctions. And so he may not be able to withdraw us from the nuclear deal, but he might be able to effectively slap on new sanctions that would basically nullify it. I think all of that is exactly right. And I think one more element here, too, is that um, even if Congress says we disagree with the president, we're not going to slap new sanctions, what is going to happen is that there is going to be a strong signal sent to businesses and investors saying Iran is still not a safe place for you to invest um, and the future of the deal is still up in the air. And frankly, that's been a problem already in the past couple of years since the implementation process started. Um, Businesses have been very reluctant to to go into Iran. The campaign season here certainly did not help. Um, And I think that this will just be one more element um, that will will, um, limit uh, the enthusiasm that businesses have for going into Iran. And in turn, if Iran doesn't see economic recovery, it won't really have an interest in staying in the nuclear deal, let alone engaging other countries on other challenges. Yeah, this is something that is basically missing from U.S. sanctions policy today is the sanctions relief part of the equation. How do we go from a position where we use sanctions to get a country to the negotiating table on something? How do we then effectively provide sanctions relief that allows companies to be confident they can do business there without violating the law? in a way that actually makes those negotiations worthwhile. Because if we can't do that, then we're never going to be able to negotiate with other actors like North Korea or, or a number of other states. That's right. We're great at the sticks, not so good at the carrots. I think that's a good t- note to wrap up on, in fact. Uh, U.S. foreign policy, good at sticks, not carrots. <laughs> so thanks for joining us for this episode of Power Problems. And a big thanks to Ariane Tabatabai for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I suspect we'll all be hearing a lot from Ariane over the next couple of months as this question continues to rumble on in the media and in the White House and continues to make headlines. So we wanted to just quickly draw your attention to an event we'll be holding here at Cato on October 10th. It's called Afghanistan Search, Negotiate or Get Out. And it will be a debate on the future of US-Afghan policy. So more details on that can be found at Cato.org. Again, a big thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you like this episode, please consider rating us on iTunes or connecting with us on social media using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. 